The Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. Today, I am speaking to Karen Lee Ashcraft, who is Professor of Communication at the University of Colorado Boulder and author of Wronged and Dangerous, which is published by Bristol University Press. I found this an exciting, somewhat terrifying and eye-opening book, which introduces the idea that, although we conveniently ignore it, populism is fueled by a feeling of manhood under attack and that it's viral masculinity that explains the spread of populism we're seeing across the world. Karen will explain more, but having read the book, it really is a case of once you see it, you can't unsee it. And you start to wonder how much it impacts on other areas of life too. And if gender is the driving force behind populism, how should we respond? Welcome, Karen. Thank you. Nice to see you, Jess. Yeah, thank you for taking the time to do this. I'm really excited to speak to you about the book. Sorry about the terrifying part. That's not my intent. <laughs> oh, really? It is a little terror. Ter- it is a little terrifying, I think. Um, Something to be taken seriously. Absolutely. So let's begin with the first part of the book title, the wronged bit. Mm-hmm. So in the book, rather than talking about what populism is or what the effects of it are, you're talking about what drives it. And you call this thing a sense of manly right wronged. So can we start with this aggrieved masculinity? And can you tell us a bit about what it is and where it comes from? Yeah, absolutely. So the term aggrieved masculinity is one that I use a lot and kind of as a synonym, manly grievance as well. So I'll use those interchangeably as we talk about this. Um, What I mean by it is really just that there is a sense that real masculinity is endangered or under siege or under attack, that some kind of manhood that deserves better or thinks it does uh, to be dominant or first in line has had its birthright stolen. So because of this, the world is somehow out of order or in crisis, and this is everyone's problem. And so that's really what I mean by that term. And I feel like a crucial nuance right away is to say, this is a very specific strain of manhood that we're talking about. It kind of depends on where you are. It has regionally specific forms, but in the West, We're mostly talking about masculinities associated with straight, white, often Christian or vaguely Christian cis men. Um, And maybe one other qualifier I'd give is that I use the term, it's a sense that manhood is endangered. And I use that term specifically because really what I want to stress is that this is more of a feeling, as Michael Kimmel puts it in his um, Angry White Masculinity book, Angry White Men, It's not so much ideology as a sentiment, right? Um, And so that's what I try to underscore in the book is the way in which this is not emotion as we think of it, some sort of conscious feeling that we can name and articulate and share with one another, but more like a conviction or a felt certainty. It's like bodily arousal and agitation. Um, Mm. And in that way, it's actually all the more compelling and powerful than some overt ideology because it's known in the body, right? Like it spikes the pulse. 
it bulges the chest, but it gets kind of stuck in the throat. So that's what I mean by the term. That's a really good way of describing it, because as I was reading the book, I did not struggle, but I couldn't fully get my head around that difference between this feeling versus the ideology. Um, I'm going to ask you a bit more about that in the next question, but I wondered, could you give a couple of examples to really give us a sense of what you mean? One that jumped out for me in the book, you talk about the character of Arthur Fleck and Joker Mm -hmm. and that this thing about where he's kind of entitled, he feels like he should be funny and he deserves to be funny and then it all comes crashing down when he's not. Is that is that a good example of what you mean? It is a good example. And actually, that helps me want to contextualize this a little bit. So this is this kind of feeling that I'm describing has actually been on the rise since the early men's movements of the 1970s that were kind of anti-feminist and responding to sexual liberation, civil rights, feminist movements and so forth. And that idea that a certain kind of white masculinity is under siege has been growing since and taking root in the culture in the US, just as an example, um, the outrage media of the conservative talk radio in the 80s, Rush Limbaugh and the like. And then in the 90s, um, you know, so often we would hear about militias or far right extremist movements and their connections to these anti-feminist men's movements were never discussed publicly. Mm. And so this is kind of some of the origin of it. But as you say, with the Joker example, it has come to saturate the culture and it's really been intensifying in the last decade or so. So if you think about, um, let me give an example other than Arthur Fleck, who's entitled to be funny Mm. and feels that his birthright's stolen when people don't get his jokes. Uh, The culture is full of these characters and one that is um, I think probably memorable for many folks is Fight Club, uh, mm. which is uh, still, it remains this like very lightning rod kind of attractive film for many young men. And there's this speech where the Brad Pitt character, the alter ego says, we were raised to think we'd be, this isn't a direct quote, but like millionaires and rock gods. Yeah. And we're finding out that we're not going to get that. And we are very, very pissed off. (laughs) So there's examples of this kind of seething sense of like rightful virility, wrongly denied. That's how I characterize it in the book, all over the culture. And these narratives are continually um, picking up steam. Yeah. And this is a bit of like the once you see it, you can't unsee it thing because I love Fight Club and I love Joker and I still love them. But there is this thread, isn't there? Um, yeah, and you do you do see them and see the characters a bit differently, I think, with that in mind. Can I mention also that what you just said, that you love those films, as have I, right? <laughs> the, yeah. the, the fact that this character is so appealing to you and I is something I hope we discuss in this conversation, that yeah. there is a draw to this. That As is, women. Um, yeah, yeah, that yeah, is yeah. magnetic about that. and almost like can be erotic even. So, yes. Right. Yeah. Yes. Before we get onto that, <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about the dangerous element of the book title. So you're, kind of, you're framing this aggrieved masculinity as a public health issue. And a really important part of the book is this evolution from toxic masculinity through to what you call viral masculinity. 
And it's what you were saying earlier about it being the feeling and then and the sensation rather than the mm. ideology. So it's not a metaphor, but I think you describe it as a physically transmissible social relation. So can you explain this socio-physical approach and why, why is it dangerous and contagious? Yes, yes, a rich question, thank you. So I should perhaps clarify that when I say dangerous, <laughs> what I mean is that whatever you think of it politically, morally, aggrieved masculinity as we're describing it is a proven public health problem. And I have a whole chapter on this in the book where I give detailed examples from mass shootings and other kinds of supremacy crimes. I realize that takes a particular shape mm -hmm. in the US to resistance to action on climate change, how that comes to scale when folks are elected to office who mm. are spouting aggrieved masculinity. I think and it's really just, important to note that it's a global, we're not just talking about yes, the US here. Right? The whole absolutely. point is this is a global thing, yeah. Absolutely, and some of my examples will come, that's kind of in the book, this is true as well, yeah. um, but I'm looking for and engaged with parallels all around the world. Um, so that's, that's what I mean by the dangerous part is that it is a public health problem and we rarely mm -hmm. talk about it in that way. But there's another component to that, which is it's a public health problem in another sense, as you just alluded to, it's actually spreading and it's spreading fast and it's mm -hmm. intensifying around the world. So the claim that I'm actually making here is that manly grievance is contagious. When I say that, I don't mean just an analogy or a metaphor to a pandemic, but I'm also not meaning it's some sort of biomedical virus. It's not that sort of claim either. The term that I use in the book is socio-physical. It's transmitted socio-physically. And let me just explain that. I think that's what you're asking me to yeah. clarify. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, especially in the West, we tend to think of our emotions and feelings as self-contained. And so it can be a little bit, um, I don't know, jarring to talk about emotional contagion or social relations that are passing from body to body through what I'm describing here as like energetic circuits, even technical circuits like the internet. What I mean by that is that these are feelings that don't exactly knock at the I'm going to call it the front door of consciousness, right? It's not someone making an argument to me that I am persuaded by after careful, considered reflection, right? No, that it's yeah. more something that's entering the body at a non-conscious, less conscious edges of awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, in those ways, what I would call it enters through the side doors. It's activating our physical selves like... Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the pulse <laughs> or um, just kind of <clears throat> agitating the body, right? Cultivating anger before the reasons fully take shape. And that's happening. In that sense, ideology is more of an afterthought. Go ahead, yeah. sorry. And that's happening in the process of our social interactions and our interactions with technology. So yeah. They're and kind yes. of a means of transmission. Yes, and that makes me want to underscore that I am not making an argument here that's blaming the internet. I'm not making that yeah. simple move. Yeah. Um, what I am saying is that 
in the last decade or so with the rise of what, you know, some folks call web 2.0 participatory platforms, mm -hmm. the intensification of social media, a new kind of communication circuitry has been born that all these social networking practices have given birth to an energetic circuitry. And I call it in the book, a network body relation. It's not the internet itself. It's the ways our bodies have begun to relate to it that heightens our physical vulnerability to the transmission of feeling. And in that sense, maybe we should, I mean, as a communication theorist, I think we need to start talking about communicability. Like this is the issue, that it's communicable more than it is communicated or expressed at this coherent level. It's okay. adherent, it's sticky. What I'm suggesting here is not just any feeling, can go viral like that, that aggrieved masculinity is particularly contagious because it is made for this media environment. It is made to ride on that new circuitry that I was just describing. And part of the reason it's made for that is because it's such a simple binary code. It flattens all this cultural variety around the world and travels as manly right wronged. Yeah. So it's such an easy thing to like meme to, you know, to yeah. spread, to get conversations going about, to react to, and then to be adapted to local circumstances. It's a feeling frame that can readily, readily be put on things one is encountering in their own environment. So that's yeah. what I mean. It's not, there's nothing simple about this transmission of feeling model. No. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, I get it now. That's really good. Um, Going back to my love of Fight Club and Joker, <laughs> I, I guess one of the things you must always get challenged with is the fact that, well, women are involved in these populist movements too. Women are involved in uh, right-wing extremist groups. Um, so how can it be masculinity that's the driving force behind them? So you alluded a bit earlier to the role we play in this. So could we talk about that more? I think the recent success of Georgia Maloney in Italy is perhaps quite a good example of this. It sure is. Yeah. And there are a handful of other visible um, populist, right-wing populist women leaders, plenty of supporters that we could point to. And you are so right. That is the first question I hear, and it's why I've yeah. devoted a chapter to it, <laughs> which yeah. is, what do you mean? Women are doing it. So how can it be about masculinity? And I think one of the things that ignores is the ways in which masculinity is available to all of us. It's not necessarily attached to men, right? And it, because of its cultural value, it can appeal to us. We can want to inhabit it. We can wear its swagger, right? <laughs> in our own ways. My answer now when people say women are involved, so counter evidence, my response is, have you met heterosexuality? <laughs> it offers women like you and me all kinds of reasons to be invested in aggrieved masculinity. Um, those reasons range from having our lives entangled with the fates of men as daughters, mothers, sexual and financial partners, wives, right? In all of these ways, um, we can reap benefits, tangible accolades, really, from um, supporting it, right? From um, arguing so are there, on are its behalf. Benefits, 
are those benefits things like security or like defining or is it more about we're defining our female identity I guess very binary doesn't it but we define ourselves up against masculinity what am I what am I getting what am I getting from a grief masculinity well we could look at that in so many ways there are identity benefits which are any time that one can associate with a certain kind of masculinity, especially white masculinity, it carries with it a cultural value and you will likely be seen as stronger, tougher, grittier, and so forth, right? So this is something I talk about in the book is the association of value with masculinity. So part of it can just be the swell of wearing the phallus for a time ourselves, right? Right. Uh, But there's another part of it that is about material interests, right? So my sons, my father, these are dear men in relation to me and they are feeling these things. And therefore I take up their cause and I want attention to their challenges. And I understand that um, his economic success is also mine in the current structure of heterosexual families Mm. and so forth, right? So there's just the entanglements range from, you know, social identity, material, economic, the intimacies of everyday lives, mm. right? It's a, it's a rich network that it should not surprise us that women get involved at all. And my kind of thinking on this is rather than let that throw you off the track, you can use the kind of women who tend to support this as uh, assistance in helping you sniff out what kind of masculinity we're talking about. Mm. Um, And in most cases, if you look at the um, preponderance of women involved in these right-wing populist movements in the West in particular, it is usually white heterosexual women or women in some cases who, even when not heterosexual, are kind of relating through the father, for example. So it's it's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. (laughs) So much to say there. It's too simple to say that it's about maintaining the status quo, isn't it? Because it's so much yes. deeper. Than yeah, that, I think these are real investments. I think that's what I mean to say. It's not just. Yeah. I don't think. I don't think most folks would describe it as I want to maintain an inequitable world, right? It's not and that many women who participate. Yeah. yeah, don't consider themselves to be anti-feminist or misogynist in any way, but mm. just their own like investments are deeply rooted in Mm. this kind of masculinity. Mm. Um, Thank you. (laughs) I feel like there's some big things there that I think we'll probably come back to a little bit later. Um, Your background is really interesting and relevant here. So as well as being a scholar, you actually grew up in a right-wing religious family and one of the lines in the book is that you describe that you had a bottomless awe for white American masculinity. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious about what happened to move you away from that and how it informs your work, obviously it informs your work now, but yeah, just hear a little bit about your background would be interesting. Yes, thank you for that always challenging question for me. It <laughs> for the, a tough for, one. yeah. It is, it yeah. is. And maybe I'll say a a bit about that in a minute. I Mm -hmm. 
So, yes, I grew up in a family, um, both immediate and extended, steeped in the religious right in the U.S. And we were explicitly anti-feminist. Um, part of my familiarity with these men's movements comes from my own living with them and around them. Um, the racial resentments were a bit more coded, and I talk about that some in the book, mm -hmm. but I was deeply identified with this. I mean, just to give a vivid example, I was like a child protesting outside abortion clinics. Oh, like, really? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so well, this went deep. Yeah. And um, you ask how I left. So there's an irony to this, which is, um, though I was growing up in the 1980s, my parents still held on to some views religiously inspired that it doesn't make a lot of sense to pay much money for women to go to college because they're just going to get married. So I ended up going to this commuter working class um, college that was incredibly diverse. And some of my early wonderings and doubts about the world in which I was steeped uh, exploded as I encountered, you know, all mm -hmm. these like social movement theories and things of this sort. Uh, so that experience is what helped me to leave the religion. And I left that first. Okay. And then somehow I ended up at grad school to study these very things. So yeah. of course, that's also part of the interest for me. How it informs my work is a really good question. And I thought about this constantly as I was writing. One thing is that anti-populism, like the kind of left react, kind of reactive, <laughs> yeah. um, how disgusting or how shameful or gross, or that has always irritated me, kind of and annoyed me. It's a big me. problem. It's a big problem. Yeah. It is. It is. And, you know, as an academic, it's something also that I see in my work environment. So not just in the kind of political conversations on the left. So that's always been an irritant, I guess. But at the same time, I think that family experience has sensitized me to some things that people who talk about anti-populism, uh, one scholar that comes to mind is Thomas Frank, mm -hmm. uh, some dynamics that they miss in regards to gender. So for example, there's a number of critics on the left that take um, the left to task for ignoring the working class mm -hmm. and kind of jumping on this identity politics of elite feminism. Yeah. And the implication there is that the working class is pretty much entirely white men. Yeah. So that's something that I contend with in the book is like, how is class getting invoked here? This is a really tricky issue um, because obviously class inequity is incredibly important, but when it's being kind of appropriated in the interests of aggrieved masculinity, we have a problem. So all this to say, I think that my proximity um, growing up to these kinds, how all these things are entangled, how they're all part of one package has helped me sift through some arguments on the left and right in different ways and come at this with some knowledge from the inside that I think a lot of populist scholars uh, don't have. So those are some ways. I, I just wanna say that I am actually anxious um, about the book coming out because yeah. My relations with family have been strained deeply, like so many people uh, in the Trump years, for instance, yeah. and we are trying and I um, am so grateful for that. And my family has given me so much. And in fact, 
you know, however ironic it may be, the tools and the perspective to write this book. And yeah. so I guess I I would want them to hear it as a loving outreach, you know, not a, this is not a hammer of criticism. At least that's not the perspective I hope to be coming from in the book. No, you don't write with any judgment. I, don't, I think it's about yeah. understanding, isn't it? Rather than yeah. any kind of this is good or this is bad. Yeah. Um, this does go on a little bit to my next question. Um, I wanted to ask, oh, some people might say that it seems like on the surface, it seems like a very binary argument, doesn't it? Like mm. this is male and this is female. Um, but you mentioned just then um, class and race. So how, how does intersectionality come into this? I think yes. your, your point, you talk about gender first rather than gender forward. And yeah. Yes, this is so important to me. <laughs> yeah, this is such an important question. I want to say unequivocally that I am not advocating any kind of binary approach. In fact, what I'm suggesting is that the binary is being used in an insidious, strategic way that we have to get past binary analysis in order to see that happening. Yeah, it's so that's the opposite, isn't it? Of what yes. it might seem like on the surface. Yeah. Yes. And that is why I spend the first part of the book trying to recondition us for a different kind of gender analysis that I refer to as gender biodiversity, so that yeah. we are freed enough from the gender binary to see how it is operating in the present moment. So I just want to maybe clarify that first. And also to say, my own research long before this book has always been about what you just called intersectionality, has long been about gender in light of and in relation to race, class, sexuality, religion, a lot more. Um, my claim in the book is that the reason we need to start with gender, earlier I mentioned how aggrieved masculinity is a particularly kind of sexy, smooth code because it's so flattened, right? Because it's mm. binary, mm. manly, right, wronged. And the suggestion in the book is that this is how new populism is traveling all over the world on this code. So you need to lead with gender to see the gender binary doing that work, to catch that code, to catch that trick where populism becomes the perfect form for identity politics, for a manly grievance that doesn't want to be named as gender, that doesn't mm. want to have an identity, that wants to be seen as the ordinary person, the average Joe. So you need some knowledge of the gender binary and how it works to rip off that cover. And once you rip off that cover and see manly grievance just under the surface of populism, it's time to immediately ask what kind of masculinity are we talking about? Never stop with gender. Gender is just an entry into the analysis. And then you'll find out his racial characteristics, his religious affiliations, mm -hmm. you know, it, all around the world, this is taking shape and attaching to different kinds of bodies and issues. And I don't pretend in the book to capture all of those. I simply suggest um, that we are seeing the rise of localized forms of this manly mm. grievance all over the place. 
And so to catch those, lead with gender, and then jump into all the others. The, the motto I've tried to use in the book is you use, then lose the gender binary. Yeah. <laughs> it's never about gender by itself. Um, it's always interacting with these other things. I am not at all claiming that gender oppression related to right-wing populism is somehow primary or the most pressing. Absolutely not. This is all one package, white mm. supremacies, religious supremacies, Christian nationalism, misogyny, racism. It's all tangled up together under the banner of ma uh, manly grievance masquerading as populism. It's really interesting how gender does, gender is the bit that isn't discussed. And I was quite yeah. surprised at my at my personal reaction when I was reading yes. this because I kept kind of not getting annoyed with you, but <laughs> I kept kind of going, but it's about class, it's about inequality, it can't be about gender. This is oversimplifying it too much. I had a real mental block in acknowledging that gender was a thing. And then like, you start thinking about how things are reported, how the capital riot is reported. Yeah, and there's no discussion. Gender's just never mentioned. So yeah, and I think it might be to do with what you just said about not wanting to claim a gender identity because of something to do with a universal subject. And my question is, why, why, why do we, why do I ignore gender as an issue? It's um, so striking, isn't it? How. On the one hand, it's one of the most obvious things, especially when you're watching visual representations mm. of something like the January 6th insurrection. Yeah, it's yeah. so obvious. Yeah. And yet the least discussed. I think there's a few reasons for this. And yes, I definitely would connect it to what we were just saying about the universal subject. I think the, the populist frame is particularly um, perfect <laughs> for, the, for these movements because it is about the ordinary person. It denies any gender specificity. And um, in that way, it's almost like ready-made for a movement of manly grievance. But more than that, I think all of us, myself included, have um, been conditioned to see class analysis as like somehow more material, more serious, the hard kind of, that's like the harder um, case. Whereas gender is uh, associated with identity politics, culture wars, softer, fluffier. And in that description, I hope you can hear the gender binary working again, mm -hmm. where gender looks like the silly stuff that's associated with, you know, feminized groups and Feelings class and identity. Yes, yes. The softer concerns, if you could hear my air quotes. <laughs> yeah. uh, and class is associated with masculinity. The thing is, class inequity actually is a universal issue. Like, it does apply, but as long as class is associated with masculinity, we're not going to address class inequity very well. Class inequity is absolutely a priority. I think for many of us, it's certainly a priority in the book, 
My task is to kind of disentangle it from the grip of manly grievance. That is um, the suggestion that I'm making. Not the class should be sidelined, but yeah. that we need to think about the work that it's doing right now and how to wrest it away from manly grievance. If I were to abridge that, I would say that one of the obstacles to calling out gender as a form of analysis is actually the very sexism that makes gender look trivial, that makes gender look like, oh, really, you're going to make that the issue with all these other big things? And I'm saying that's the gender binary at work. That's sexism at work, convincing us that gender is a trivial sideshow compared to everything else. Masculinity has been an animating force through much of history, as many scholars have written about. Mm. And so when you see a preponderance of men and manly energies, you ought to be asking what they're doing. What kind of, what kind of reserves are they bringing, motives, um, impulses? What kind of, I don't want to say rationales, although that's involved too, are coming to the table. And we don't ask that. We just go, mm, like somehow it's it's sort of natural that it's more men doing it. It isn't. And yeah. we need to ask what it's doing. Yeah. And that's the thing. And then you also get this feeling the gender conversation's been had. And is it a bit old fashioned in a way to be yes. going back to gender? And that can't possibly still be a thing. So it must be down to class or it must be down to race or some kind of other injustice. I am so glad you said that. Yes. And this is why I'm trying not to retreat to an old feminism mm. that makes this about men and women. Yeah. This is why I spend the first part of the book saying we need gender analysis right now, but gender analysis of a different kind. Yeah. We're not going back to some passe issue that people perceive has already been addressed, a movement that's been had, which by the way, I would say, how's that working? As rights get rolled back for women well, as well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Women of all kinds. Unfortunately, so, we are going backwards, yeah. Yes, so I don't mean to dismiss that, yeah. but this is not like, hey, let's get that binary gender analysis back on the table. No, let's come up with a new gender story that fits the times and that we are watching unfold in front of us. Yeah. But to be able to talk about gender as an explanatory device, as something that helps us understand what is happening, we need new gender tools. That's yeah. an argument that I that I am committed to. Yeah. Yeah. It's a new way of having the conversation, isn't it? Yes. 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 Yeah. Thank you for saying that. That was an important, I think, nuance. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, just a couple more questions. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about um, technology, contemporary media environment, social media. So you talk in the book about the manosphere. And this is the yeah. online space where ideas like the ones we're discussing kind of develop and get embedded and like even end up in speeches and policy yeah. really jumped out at me in the book. Could you talk a little <laughs> bit about the manosphere? Certainly. So the manosphere, if you're not familiar with the term, and maybe some folks are, it was coined somewhere in the 2010s to capture this rising tide of the internet phase of anti-feminist men's movements. And mm -hmm. since that time has exploded, 
If you are not familiar with it, it is among the most virulent, uh, jaw-dropping misogyny, racism, all again bound up into one package uh, that you've witnessed. We got a taste of it uh, in 2014 is kind of when I think it entered the public consciousness in at least some locations in the world with Gamergate, that campaign that was like just hostility, trolling, shitposting, doxing, all these terms. Um, women is that against who, the female, yeah, against yes, the female. Yes, women, who, yeah. women and queer folks who were game designers. And mm. it just became it. So that I mentioned that because that instance that some people may be familiar with, or at least remember, captures something of what I'm saying about how the manosphere operates. I'm not trying to create some cause and effect argument that the manosphere has grown and there's a conspiracy theory here where everything is streaming out of it. I'm actually making the case that the manosphere is a super spreader of aggrieved masculinity. It is the place where the energy gets revved up, where the anger flares, where the rush of manly grievance Uh, is enacted over and over physical repetition. It's where those circuits that I was talking about earlier get fired. Um, And these are loosely connected and sometimes disconnected, sometimes warring communities. So -hmm. there's not a coherence to this in the way we like to think of a movement, but there is a ton of coherence energetically. And what I try to show in the book is how this leaps offline, how it transcends on and offline boundaries, making its way into everything from campaign speeches to policy content to aesthetics of lockdown protests, right? Like its tendrils are everywhere now to the point where you and I will watch a film like Joker, Fight Club, et cetera, and be like, that resonates, right? That's how deeply into the culture it has saturated. Yeah. Is that the incel movement? Is that just a really extreme example of it? The incel, so um, there's no, it's not different. There are a number of, um, there's great resources on this as well. Other scholars who have detailed the kinds of communities available on the manosphere. So if you have heard of incels, that's one uh, gripping example and painful example Mm. of how, you know, I think another thing that points to is how challenges that are experienced by men intimately as like real dilemmas, what happens when they plug those into these socio-technical circuits that we're talking about, right? Because the incel community has also generated a level of rage that has manifested in uh, mass killings and a number of other just really disturbing kind of illustrating that onto offline um, leak of anger. That's one example. Others, pickup artists, um, the recent kind of coverage of Andrew Tate is a good example. These characters kind of come into public consciousness here and there. And my interest is not in any particular character, but the overall swell of activity and um, energy that it has generated. There's also, um, if you haven't heard of it, it's M-G-T-O-W, men going their own way. I have <laughs> there's uh, men's rights activists. There's all kinds. Yeah. 
communities on this. Yeah, and actually we can't look only at the extreme version of it by incels, can we? Because you missed the point, I think. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And increasingly the extreme is the core. I mean, this is the thing. You see yeah. that politically, but it's also happening um, in the manosphere overall. The extreme oh, okay. is yeah. making its way to the core. Okay. So, yeah. I think that's where my terrifying yes comes yes. in. Yeah. 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 Okay. I have one more question to finish. Um, what I really want to get down to is how this understanding of the impact mm. of a grief masculinity, how does it help? Um, yeah. What should we do? You call for lateral empathy and critical mm -hmm. feeling in the book. And I think these are quite helpful phrases. Um, so could you describe them? And I guess just say what actions you'd like people to yes. take having read the book or how you'd like people to feel yes. having read the book. Yes. So I would, speaking generally, say that there are two not mutually exclusive approaches people tend to take to right-wing populism. One is to confront it, argue with it, I think that's like beautifully illustrated in all the talk we hear now about threat to democracy. It's a threat to mm -hmm. dem democracy is under siege, right? Yeah. Another response is what I call in the book, empathy from the front. And this is trying to be compassionate and understanding and listening to what these movements say and addressing uh, their concerns. And I'm not trying to replace either one of these approaches, but to add what I see as a missing um, paradigm in this conversation, which is if we are really talking about a pandemic of feeling, we need a paradigm that is suited to that. And mm -hmm. a way that I try to capture this in the book repeatedly is less listening to what populism says more tracking how it spreads, right? Yeah. So empathy from the side is the term that I use, or you said lateral empathy as well. Yeah. What I'm advocating is slowing down the usual response to either argue or empathize, bypass what's being said, bypass the blustering symptom and ask what is the feeling that is animating this and where is it coming from? How is it getting in? <laughs> and that is what I argue aggrieved masculinity is, and that it's coming through the side doors of bodies, as I mentioned earlier, who are bound in today's um, media socio-technical relations. So the argument that I'm making is that we need to come to terms with our bodily permeability is the term I use in the book, or porosity, our vulnerability to the transmission of feeling, we put all this energy into critical thinking and dis and misinformation campaigns, right? We need the quality of the ideas to be right. People need to get truth. Uh, people need to learn how to process arguments. Yes, yes, we absolutely need those things. The missing paradigm is critical feeling. We need to learn how to guard more than the front door. We need to learn about our bodily vulnerabilities and think about what security systems look like for those as well. I think this is particularly pressing for 
the young generation and generations to follow. Yeah. Um, this is something that could be taught in schools. We have sensory knowledge. We just haven't amassed it into a sort of critical thinking, critical feeling, body, mind curriculum. Um, this is something that could happen in schools, at universities, in families. Like it's, I think it's critical for the media environment in which we live on so many issues actually beyond aggrieved masculinity, but it's the case that I'm making with relation to manly grievance. And I try to show in the book how um, critical feeling calls us to do all manner of things differently, not just educate the senses, but educate also journalistic practices to begin to call out manly grievance, to begin to realize how they participate in its sensory identity politics, not an identity politics that is about actually um, kind of conscious level group-based stuff. It's mm -hmm. more about brands like, um, you know, you get hit by, oh, critical race theory. Ah. <laughs> it's like the creation of scares and threats and fear and these sorts of, and rage, right? These sorts mm -hmm. of things. Um, Anti-LGBTQ legislation all around the world, just right. save our children, like the, all, all of these things. This is identity politics at a bodily level. We need critical feeling to infuse our technical tech, uh, technology policies and algorithms. We need it to infuse our journalistic and educational practices our kind of family socialization. I hope that gives you some sense of the scope without belaboring the point. Yes, absolutely. I mean, to massively oversimplify, it comes down to having an awareness of how things make us feel, as well yes. as how things change, potentially change the way we think, and yes. knowing when that might be a negative thing, and then working out ways to stop the change in your feelings and how you experience the world and then how you demonstrate that, I suppose. Yes, yeah. There um, are all kinds of specific examples of this in the book and mm -hmm. also just thinking through, you know, we are quite familiar with the paradigm of critical thinking and there's all kinds of associated yeah. questions with that. What are the questions for critical feeling? <laughs> and mm -hmm. that's what I try to develop in the final chapter. Uh, what would that, what what kind of shape could that take? What would that look like? Um, it's really I interesting. think, yeah, I think, you know, the upshot of the book is that this is, um, while I wouldn't go so far as to say terrifying, because why be terrified? It is True. an existential, like, it's urgent. And I think mm -hmm. the urgency is beyond, we hear now about threats to democracy, sure, important, but public and planetary health are on the line. Yeah. And this is what I try to underscore. It's urgent, there's stuff we can do and we can do it in a populist way. <laughs> we can do it in a way that is not elitist or technocratic or returning to old managerialisms. Um, and it requires kind of using the contemporary media environment in a different way than we do a more conscious and full body, full body consciousness way yeah that's a great note to end on I think it gives some thoughts for the future um thank you Karen I've really appreciated having the chance to actually ask you all the questions I wanted to ask in the book well I haven't asked them all because there were loads more but what you <laughs> what you've said has really helped me to get in my head around it a lot more 
thank you for these terrific questions and the opportunity to think through it together. Yeah, no, it's great. I love doing this. Um, so, Wronged and Dangerous, Viral Masculinity and the Populist Pandemic by Karen Lee Ashcraft is published by Bristol University Press. And you can find out more about the book on our website, which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.